0: Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we want to look again this week at Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. We're uh, taking some time with these verses, not that we haven't been taking time with the whole book, but we're taking some time with these verses because uh, they include these words that are uh, often misunderstood Um uh, in, on the one hand, and then, you know, in the case of many of you who are here, um, these ideas are, are new and, and we're encouraged as we uh, deal with the scriptures and particularly some of the deeper things, the, the things harder to understand. We're just we're encouraged to take our time with these things. And that's what we're doing as we look at these verses. So let me read them and uh, encourage uh, you, that though you've heard them before, you give attention now to uh, this reading of God's Word. Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, having given us your word, would you you now, uh, as we pray each week, would you now grant us that you would be here very specially in the person of your spirit to be the one to open our eyes and our hearts to understand and to receive this, your word. This is good gospel medicine, dear Jesus. And so please come and by this wonderful ministry of the spirit, give us grace to understand and take in what you have for us. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Somebody asked me uh, this last week, are we getting down to tree level on Sunday? And uh, for those of you uh, for whom that question um, seems f- out of left field, uh, let me just say uh, quickly, I trust, that we've been first at 30,000 feet. When we came to look at this passage, Romans 8, 28 to 30, that's where we started. We started at the 30,000-foot level. In other words, trying to get a big-picture perspective on these verses and trying to learn some things about how it is we approach the Scriptures generally. And we looked at 2 Peter, verse 16 of chapter 3, where Peter gives us, frankly, some very, very practical helps as we come to a passage like this. And there there were three, and this is, for those of you who have not heard the first two sermons in this series, this gives you an on-ramp to today's Uh, message and it's review for those of us who are older and whose brains are becoming calcified and we do forget things from week to week. So the on-ramp. First, these three things. When we come to these verses, we are coming to scripture. This is the word of God. These words that we find in these verses, foreknowledge, predestination, these, these words are not devised by Augustine or Calvin or or somebody else across the history of the life of the church. These are Bible words, biblical words, biblical concepts. And and Peter reminds us that as we come to the letters of Paul, we are coming to the Scriptures. We're coming to the Word of God. That's what you see in that passage. And then the second thing that he mentioned, which I think, I hope we found to be of great comfort, Peter acknowledges that when you read Paul, there are certain things that are hard to understand. Certain things that are hard to understand. And my... Strong encouragement to you a couple of weeks ago was simply this. When you come to things that are hard to to understand, don't turn away from those things. Just understand this. Sooner or later, when you come into contact with the God of the Bible, something is going to take your breath away. Something is going to stagger you. And that is as it should be because God is infinite. God exceeds our capacities fully to comprehend. Herman Bovink wrote this uh, great book. It's called The Doctrine of God. You don't have to buy it, you don't even have to read it. The first sentence is this Mystery is the vital element of dogmatics. You're in the deep end of the pool when you come face to face with the God of the Bible. And sooner or later, something is going to mystify you. And so don't turn away from these things that are hard to understand, but wade into them deeply. And then here's the third thing that Peter encourages. He encourages implicitly that we exercise great caution as we come to these things because they can be twisted to our own and, and to other people's harm. And that's why we're taking time with these things, because we want to understand them. So that's 30,000 feet. We come to Scripture We come to things that are hard to understand. We exercise great care as we come to them. And then last week, we asked these three questions of the text, dropping from 30,000 feet down to 10,000 feet. We asked these questions. Why does Paul say what he says here? And to whom is Paul saying these things in these verses? And where is Paul pointing in what he says in these verses? And here are the three answers. Paul says what he says because he is a pastor. He says what he says because he's a pastor. He's a lot of things. He's an evangelist. He's an apologist. He's a theologian. He's an apostle. He's a church planter. He's a whole lot of things. But woven through all of it, he is a pastor. He loves people. He cares about his people. And he says what he says to his people for their good and their benefit. He speaks, he writes as a pastor. And to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to people who find themselves in the midst of this Christian life, which is characterized, as you read Romans 5 through 8, but read any place in the New Testament, this Christian life which is characterized by struggle. By struggle. It's hard. You want easy? Don't come to Jesus. Jesus is not like a bridge over troubled water. For those of you who came to Christ in the late 60s or early 70s and saw the bumper stickers, Jesus is just like a bridge over troubled water. Uh Uh-uh. If you want easy, don't come to Jesus. The Christian life is a life of struggle. It is a battle. It is a fight. It is warfare. It involves opposition, discouragements, heartaches, disappointments. These are the people to whom Paul is writing these things. And what is Paul pointing to in what he says he is pointing to the final end and outcome of the gospel, which is glory. That's what he's pointing to. Read these verses. That's where he ends up. He ends up in glory. And that is where the gospel ends up. In the final renovation, restoration of all things wherein The beauty and majesty and glory of God is put fully on display in a healing and restorative, pulsating with life kind of way. That's what he's pointing to. That's what Paul sees out there in the future. And that is what he brings These folks who are reading this letter, hearing this letter for the first time, he brings them back again and again and again to the final outcome of their salvation. So, what is Paul doing? He's offering deep encouragement, deep assurance, deep hope as he writes to these folks. And the way he does it is by taking some words, some ideas, and stringing them together like a string of pearls. Pearls are valuable. A string of pearls is exceedingly valuable. And these words and phrases that he strings together here have a value, a value for the Christian who finds himself, herself, in the midst of this battle, this fight, this struggle. These things are like nutrients. Think of them as valuable, in the way that a string of pearls is valuable. Think of them as a good, well balanced meal upon which your soul feeds, not over which your brain gets cramped, but a well balanced meal upon which your soul feeds. Truths that keep believers. In the midst of the craziness of world, the world, truths that keep believers sane. That's what Paul is doing here, and that's what he gives us. So let's look at these. We're now we're down at tree level. Now, in fact, we're even below tree level. Now we're down in the weeds, if you will, looking at the particular words, having moved from 30,000 feet to 10,000 feet now to ground level. So let's look at these words, these phrases, and... You know, when I started this, I thought we'd do it in two weeks. We're now at three weeks, and it's, there's going to be a fourth week. So what can I tell you? Let's look at some of these phrases, some of these words. First of this, verse 28. God is working. God is working. Here's a, here's a I just want to make this point. Don't disconnect any one of these words, ideas, phrases from the others around the single word or phrase. You've got to keep them together because they hold together. They hang together. And the first thing, the sort of operative and defining phrase for this passage is this. Verse 28, God is working. God is at work. And the text tells us, and I think this is the best way to render verse 28, the text tells us this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. God works in all things, and he is working for the good of those who love him. You ask yourself, and I'd encourage you to do this right now, even though you're listening to me talk about these things, I'd encourage you to do this right now. You ask yourself, what is going on in my life right now? What are the circumstances that I find myself in the midst of? What am I wrestling with? What am I struggling with? What is the good? What is the hard? What is the the blessing? What is the, the, the cross that I find myself in? In the midst of all of that, what is the constant? If you're a Christian this morning, what is the constant in the midst of all of it? It's this, that God is working. God is working in the midst of of your current situation. God has been working yesterday, the day before, the day before that. God will be working tomorrow and the day after that and for every single day of the rest of your life until your life comes to an end or He returns and gathers you to Himself, finishing in your life what He started. God is working. That is the foundational and operative phrase for this passage. I've shared with you my friend, Robert Greenberg, Roberto Monteverdi, who has this series of lectures, how to listen to and understand great music. He has, he has a little comment on Bell's so-called canon in D. He doesn't like it. His wife doesn't like it. But for me, it's always served as a wonderful illustration. What I learned from Robert Greenberg is that technically, Pachelbel's canon is not a canon, it is a pasicalia. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> but here's what a pasicalia is it is built upon a ground bass theme. There are eight notes that form that ground bass theme in Pachelbel's pascalia. and you probably know those eight notes. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in Pachelbel's Passacaglia. There's instrumental ornamentation. There's the emphasis of this instrument or that instrument or, or there are the strings all together. There's all of this stuff that's going on. But what is it that never changes? The eight notes. They're there as a constant. Thirty years ago, when I was first introduced to that piece of music, It seemed to me that it was a wonderful illustration of the very thing we're talking about here. In the midst of all of the change, all of the fluctuations of your circumstances, there is a constant, and that constant is that God is working. Our middle daughter, uh, Annie, our youngest daughter, I'm sorry, Annie, drew pictures when she was about six years old of the seven days of the creation. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Day seven was really fun. Day seven was a picture of a bed with nobody in it but one of those little bubbles coming up from the pillow with a bunch of Z's in it. God resting on the seventh day. You get right... God never rests. God never takes a nap. God never takes His eye off of everything that He has made. Zach mentioned it in his opening prayer. God the Creator upholds everything that He has made by the word of His mouth. He never stops... Working. What's going on in your life? Where are you right now? Do you see that in the midst of it, with all of the uncertainties and confusions and perplexities and everything else, there is a constant. And that constant is God himself. He is working. And what is he working for? He is working for your good. That's what the text says. He is working for your good. How do I understand this word, good? How do I think about it? Let me give you a principle that I think uh, is an important, even critical principle for understanding how to read the Bible. For, in fact, understanding how to read the Bible for real benefit to your Christian life. Here's the principle. When I come to the Bible, I have to set aside my definition of terms. And I have to let the Bible speak for itself. See, I have a notion in my head about what the good is or what the good looks like. You do too. Just sort of parenthetically, that is where the rub is, isn't it? The rub in this is that I have this notion of what is good, what I, in my mind, in my heart, perceive to be, think to be, have concluded to be the good for me. But isn't it very often the case that God's definition, God's understanding, God's perspective or perception of what the good is varies wildly from my understanding of what the good is. Folks, I need to check my understanding at the door. It doesn't mean when I say that, that I check my brain at the door. I engage my brain. But I have to check at the door much of my understanding of what is good or what God is like or how I think about the world because in so many instances, My understanding is twisted and distorted. When I come to the Bible, I've got to let the Bible speak for itself and be willing to set aside my definitions of terms or words so that my thinking and my heart and my Christian life can be shaped by, informed by, how God defines these terms. So what is good? Well, let me suggest to you that good, in the scriptures, is much, much bigger, much higher, far more glorious than we, in our definition of the term, allow for. Think about it in this way. Where is the word first used? Where do you find the word good, first used? used in the scriptures genesis 1 genesis 1 in the work of creation the creation which is the work of an artist we don't have time to go into all of the intricacies of this but but just read genesis 1 read it closely read it carefully look at the work of the artist the progressive labor and shaping which God is involved with in bringing out of the creation this thing of exquisite beauty. And at all of these points along the way, several of them, God stops and He looks at what He has made and He makes a declaration. He passes a judgment upon it. He says, it was good. It was good. It was good. And then at the end of his creative activity, day six, God says, it is very good. I wonder if Mozart, at the end of his composing the Jupiter Symphony, or the Marriage of Figaro, took a step back and said, that is really good. I don't, know, I don't know Mozart, of course. I don't know many artists. But my sense is that every human artist looks at something that she has created or made, something that he has formed or fashioned, takes a step away from it and sees the flaws that you and I would never see, sees the imperfections, reflects upon it and says, Oh, I wish I had done that a bit differently. that the hardest period of time in life is for me, it's when I go home on Sunday afternoon. I have to go to bed. Because if I don't, I will think about this sermon. And all of the things that I didn't say that I could have said, did say that I shouldn't have said, all of the things that were said that could have been said better, there is none of that with respect to God. There is no sense in which God takes a step back from what he has made and says to himself, mm, bad design, bad execution. It is all very good. The work of this artist has no lack. God looks at what He has said and says, this is what I conceived. This is what I imagined. This is what I wanted. And what is it that happened? God brought out of chaos order. God brought out of darkness light. God brought out of emptiness glory and beauty and a thing pulsating with life. And He said of it, it is exactly what I can see." And it is very good. And he takes absolute delight in what it is that he has made. Folks, when Paul says in Romans 8.28 that God is working all things together for your good, what is the good that Paul has in mind? Understand it in the context Of God's work in creation. God will not be satisfied with anything less than what is supremely good for you. He has a conception in His mind, He has a plan that He is working. And the outcome of that plan is not your misery, it is not your suffering. The outcome of that plan is your beauty, your glory as it's put in the rest of the passage, your conformity with the image of Jesus Christ, His Son. Something infinitely more glorious than even the creation itself. What is good? It's not a relative thing, folks. It's not a low-level thing. It is a most exalted thing. The good that God has in view for you is a thing that He takes supreme delight in. And he is working that good in the midst of everything that is going on in your life. And for whom is he doing this? Here's the third thing. For whom is he doing this? He is doing this for those whom he has called. He's doing this for those whom he has called. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to this purpose. Now again, I kind of have to check some of my thinking at the door when it comes to understanding calling. I'm not talking about vocation, the various callings of God upon your life. What this passage is about, talking about Is this central and most critical calling. When God calls, how does that work? What does that mean? I don't know about you, but I am getting an incessant flood of phone calls at this time of year. And I am so thankful for caller ID. Because I can look at my phone and I can see that it's Mr. Nielsen who's calling either to ask me who I'm going to vote for or what television programs I've been watching. Or I can see 866. And I know that it's a toll-free call. And it's probably coming from some political candidate or some PAC or something else. And they want to bend my ear about political stuff. I'm getting this relentless, incessant stream of phone calls. But you know what? In each case, I can look at what's on the caller ID and I can say, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to take this call. I'm going to reject this call. You need to understand that when the Bible talks about calling, when Paul talks about calling, as he uses this word in Romans chapter 8, it's not like getting a phone call. It's not like getting a shout from across the room, Yo! Paul uses this word a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Let me read them. And let me just point out the connections that the Apostle Paul makes as he uses this word Paul, in this passage he 's talking about Abraham, the basic flow of this letter so far is that there 's an introduction those first twelve, thirteen, fourteen verses, and then Paul introduces the theme of this letter, which is the idea that the just by their faith shall live, and then he begins with the problem of sin and that 's basically one eighteen through and into chapter three and verse twenty, and then in verse twenty one of chapter three. Paul gives us the answer to the problem of sin, and then he answers the question, how do I make this answer my own? And chapter 4 is the answer that he gives. The answer to the problem of human sin, as we said last week, is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And the way that I make that solution my own is by receiving it, by faith not by pedaling faster and trying harder, but by giving up and saying, finally, God has done something for me that I'm powerless to do for myself, and I receive it by faith. And Abram becomes the principal illustration of the life of faith. And then in verse 16, Paul writes this, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, You see the connection that Paul is making? In this church, I've suggested this for years. If you want to really understand what it is that God is doing in redemption, look at what God did in creation. And that is the very thing that Paul is doing here. He's making the connection between the work of God in creation in which God calls into existence things that do not exist. The creation didn't exist. You don't call the creation and say, yo, if the creation doesn't exist. You call the creation into existence. And He likens that to what happens with this call. When God calls someone, He summons that person from death to life. From non-existence into existence. Pick your picture. Pick your analogy. See, At bottom, my struggle with a developmental view of the universe, a a, a view of the universe which suggests that there is no God, there is no infinite personal being at home in the universe whose existence explains why the universe exists, the reason I can't get my brain around, the denial of that proposition is simply this. I don't know how something comes into existence from non-existence. I can't make it work. It's hard enough trying to make it work that there is an infinite personal God who inhabits the totality of limitless space, but I can't make sense of the proposition that something comes from nothing. Paul is saying here, This is how we're to think about calling. There is somebody at home in the universe. He calls into existence things that do not exist. And He calls the dead from death back to life. And when He calls, there's no saying no. Thanks be to God. What's a picture of this? What's an illustration of this? I'll suggest to you that the great illustration, the classic illustration, is Lazarus himself. You have, in the resurrection of Lazarus, a picture of what it is that God does when he calls someone from death to life, from non-existence to existence. Jesus stood outside the grave of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead beyond disputing. Jesus prayed. And Jesus said to Lazarus, Come forth. Now think about that. Here's the theological interpretation, if you will, of what happened at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus call was effectual. His call was effectual. There was more involved in his summoning Lazarus than the mere pronouncing of words. With the pronouncing of words, just as was true in the creation... The words went forth, not only as words going forth, but with a power that made those words effectual, empowering those words to accomplish what those words were designed to accomplish. Jesus called Lazarus forth, giving Lazarus in that call the ability, the power, to come out of that grave. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, there are two questions I hope that are rolling around in your head as we think about these things. When I think about the fact that I'm a Christian, the first question is this, why me? Why am I a Christian? Here's the second question. Why is anybody a Christian? There's only one answer to that question. There's only one answer to both questions. And the answer is simply this. The God of heaven and earth, who called into existence things that did not exist, calls people from darkness and death and bondage to life and light and freedom. He calls, and his call has power to raise the dead. His call. Is effectual. So if you're a Christian today, there is one reason. There is one reason. God has called you from death to life, God has summoned you out of the grave. And who are those? And we'll have to come back to this next week and look at it in greater detail. Who are those whom God calls? They are those. Whom God has foreknown. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called? Who are those who are called? Those who are called are the ones who were first foreknown, and those who then were foreknown are those who then were predestined. What is it to foreknow? Again, we'll have to look at this in greater detail next week, but it isn't simply knowing about something. It isn't knowing something in advance. You need to understand that in the Bible, knowing is not about information. It is about relationship. It is about intimacy. It is about love. It is about delight. Let me just give you a couple of passages. I've referred to this passage before. Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife. And his wife conceived and gave birth to a son. Again, Start back at the beginning where these words first appear. Understand these words in their context. Set aside. Leave at the door your understanding of what it is to know something. For us in the 21st century, knowing is information. It's having abilities. It's learning stuff. For the Bible, knowing is relationship. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The trajectory is set there. So if knowing is about relationship, if knowing is about intimacy, the most intimate of intimacy, intimacies, foreknowing is knowing in that way in advance. It is for loving. John chapter 10, verses 14 and 27. Jesus says, I know. The reason I wanted to read and sing the 23rd Psalm this morning is because of John chapter 10. I know my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus isn't just saying, I know about my sheep. Jesus is saying, I No, my sheep. I love my sheep. I delight in my sheep. And all of the authority and power of heaven and earth entrusted to me by my Father is going to be employed to this end that my sheep are preserved and kept. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I love my sheep. What is it? What is it then to foreknow? It isn't just knowing about God knows about everything. But my brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you know that you are a Christian, you ask the question, why am I a Christian at all? The answer is this. For reasons I can't understand. I can't give an account for. God in grace and mercy has loved you. And having loved you, He has called you to himself. And I would suggest to you that a way to summarize these verses that we're looking at in Romans 8, 28 through 30, is simply this. It is God saying to you, look, I loved you from before the foundation of the world. I love you now, and I am not going to stop loving you. I will love you from one end of eternity to the other. I will love you through the struggles and difficulties and heartaches of this life. I will love you into the eternity to come. Gerardus Voss, another great Dutchman. Not all Dutchmen are great, but there are some who are really great. Preached the sermon from Jeremiah 33.3. 3. Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And this is how he summarized that verse. The best proof, I may have quoted this before, take it with you, meditate upon it. The best proof that Christ will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he never began. Jesus never began to love you because he loved you with an everlasting love. And let me just remind you as we bring this to a close, because I know the gears are turning. I know there's stuff going on in your heads, and you're saying to yourself, well, what about that person? Or what about that person? Or what about my neighbor? Or what about my friend? Or what about my family member? Your neighbor, your friend, is not the focus of these verses. You are the focus of these verses. And God is saying to you, you are safe from one end of eternity to the other. And the admonition, the encouragement, the comfort in the midst of the struggles of life is that you rest in this love, which is high and deep and wide and long, unfathomable and person-specific. Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Nothing in all the creation will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Ever again. Let's pray. Lord, please take these truths. That you are working, that you're working for our good. That you call things into existence that did not exist. You call people from death to life You love with an everlasting love. Please take these things and press them deep into the hearts of these, your precious children. Oh, Jesus, be their shepherd. Be their pastor. And fold them in your never-ending love. We ask in your name. Amen.